So when was the last time you had a breakthrough moment in your life? Uh, what I mean by a breakthrough moment is it's, it's one of those like explosive events, for better or for worse, that uh, when it happens, it kind of rearranges all the other pieces of your life, and you're left to kind of put them all back together, or you have to think about life in a whole new way. A breakthrough moment. For a lot of y'all right now, the breakthrough moment you're stuck in the middle of is you just moved to a new town, you have a new roommate who's... Uh, putting out new smells you've never had to deal with before. You're in a new community. Maybe you're having a new, uh, you're finding a new church, a new level of academic rigor. It's all new to you, and it's, it's kind of jostled up and readjusting all the pieces of your life, and you're a little bit disoriented right now. Or maybe it was a good thing. Maybe a few weeks ago, uh, you got an email or a call, and they said, hey, turns out you did get the lotto scholarship. Or your parents gave you some money, and it turns out you don't have to have three jobs and do 18 credits. And you're like, yes, I get to know people in college now. Um, a breakthrough. A breakthrough phone call that changes the way you envision how the fall goes. So Anna and I are about to experience a breakthrough uh, with our first little baby boy. And uh, our sleep will be different after two weeks from now. Our lives will be different. Anna and I will relate to each other a little bit differently. I'll relate to all of you a little bit differently. You'll relate to diaper changing differently when I hand them to you. Um, but I, I've nicknamed him Mayhem after the Allstate commercials. I'm thinking that's, uh, he's going to break through and there might be more breaking than, uh, than anything else. But breakthrough moments. Something huge happens and it, it's like a domino effect. It changes the way you look at life. Uh, and so we're not just people, though, that have breakthrough moments happen to us. I don't know all of y'all in the room yet. Uh, some of you have just gotten to shake your hands so far, but I know this much about you. You spent your whole summer chasing a breakthrough moment or chasing a breakthrough. And you've already done it the past week at New Mexico State, if this is your first week. Even if it's not, you've done it as well. You're chasing after a breakthrough moment. I am too. Here's what I mean. How many of you tried a new breakthrough diet this summer where it's like, hey, eat this toothpaste with birdseed in it, and you'll lose 50 pounds. Give it the perfect weight. Or you tried some new workout, CrossFit, or some other new thing that this promises to be the breakthrough. This is the one that's finally going to let you build muscle mass and tone your core. <laughs> or you have a breakthrough moment with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You break up, or you get uh, together with someone. Um, or you're pursuing a schedule breakthrough. Finally, you have time and margin in your life. You have time to be with people. You get your homework done. How many of y'all pursued or chased after a breakthrough this summer or this week? I sure, I had, a, I had a breakthrough. I was chasing this summer. It started right after we got back from summer conference. And my goal, Anna's going to laugh when she hears this. Uh, my goal was to get up at like 5.30 or 6 every morning and to stop laughing. Uh, and to... <laughs> Take like a, a long walk or a long bike ride, and then by 8 o'clock when everybody in town is still asleep, I was going to be at my safe haven, Dunkin' Donuts, and, uh, and read and reflect and pray, get ready for the fall. Uh, and unfortunately, I have to report to you three months later, the only part of that routine that I held to every day was the Dunkin' Donuts part. And it wasn't really uh, for the prayer and reflection, more the donuts, and so the only breakthrough I had was uh, pants in my wallet. And so, um, but I was pursuing a breakthrough. Now, we laughed a little bit at that, but I really did want to be more disciplined. I really did want to get up earlier. I really did want to be more reflective. 
And I really was discouraged when one weekend, I'm like, it only, I only did it twice. And so these breakthroughs, these moments that we're all chasing, they're elusive. They always seem like one step ahead of us. Or if we get to it, it's like sand going through our fingertips. They don't stick around very long. Uh, and so kind of we're all, we're all chasing after these things. And if you can identify with anything what I've been talking about, any of these breakthroughs that you've been after, then you know what life in Rome is like when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, Rome is like any college town in America. It's similar to any college town in America sexually. Uh, it's similar in terms of relationships, how people thought about relationships. It's an intellectual, it was an intellectual place where everybody sat around and talked about ideas. A lot of lectures like this. Uh, it was a place with any religion you wanted. You could choose from the whole buffet. And you had people who said, well, they're all the same, do what's best for you. So Rome, in the day that Paul's writing this letter to these new little Christians in Rome, is actually a lot like New Mexico State. An episode of Campus PD in Rome would look a lot like an episode of Campus PD here, except they'd be in togas and y'all would be in, like, serapes and, uh, and sombreros. And so, other than that, it would look pretty much the same. Pretty similar situations. Uh, Rome and New Mexico State. And here's the thing that's even more similar. Did you go to AggieFest last week? Or any of the big table things where there's like 80 organizations. And everybody is, in some way or another, promising you a breakthrough. Join this group. Sign up with this interest or this cause. Come to this ministry and you'll arrive. Right? We don't use those terms. That's kind of what we mean. And it's this, it's, it's just this noisy, noisy place with all of these different stories promising life. Promising a little bit further, it'll be a breakthrough moment. You're finally going to get there. You're finally going to arrive. And that's what Rome was too. And, so, and that's, that's the noise that Paul writes this letter into. This wasn't a serene little group of Christians who were like sitting around waiting on the mail to come. They were in the midst of all of these other voices saying, do this, follow me and live. Just like we are, right? Uh, the stories they were tempted by are the same stories we are. Nothing's really changed. Uh, YOLO, you only live once. They had a philosophy that Epicureanism, eat, drink, and be merry for more and die. Hedonism's nothing new. Pleasure is God. Uh, do whatever you want in the moment because that's life. Um, moralism, perfectionism, the lie that a lot of us believe and live our lives by. If you can tinker with this enough, if you can get your hands on it enough, you can make this paper or this drawing that you're doing or this computer code perfect and life will be good again. They were caught up in the same kind of stories we're tempted to get caught up in. And it's important to know that the gospel comes into that noise. That the story that Paul's talking about, we'll define this word a little bit more in a minute, but the story that Paul's talking about lands right smack in the middle of a noisy little street like Aggie Fest on Imol last week. That's kind of where his story is coming. So this should beg the question in your mind, okay, Ben? then what in the world's different about Paul's story or this gospel of God in every other story? Uh, maybe, maybe you're a little bit more on the end of the spectrum of skepticism and, and maybe, maybe you don't know where you stand uh, with God or what you think about Christianity and, and you're thinking uh, even more so, well, how's how do you get the right to say that Christianity is any different than any of those other religions? You walk down the road and it's like, the Mormon table, uh, the Mormon Student Association here, and the Muslim Student Association there, 
and uh, the Atheist Student Association there, and then some Christian associations here. How do you know who's telling you the truth? Who are, who are the Christians to say that our story is somehow better than other people's stories? That's somehow going to bring the world to a breakthrough when others can't. Here's why. Paul says the gospel is power. He doesn't say the gospel is powerful. He doesn't say the gospel has power. He says, uh, if you look down here, down in verse 16, the gospel is power. It is, it is the power of God for salvation or for rescue for all who believe. Here's why this matters. All of those other little stories that we're tempted to live by, perfectionism, hedonism, whatever you want to call it, um, all of those breakthroughs that we were chasing this summer, the reason those can't change us, change our relationships, change our relationship to God, the reason they can't change us and those habits don't form is they have no power. They are reliant on your power, right? The reason that habit didn't kick in and I didn't get to change and become a more disciplined person this summer uh, is because Dunkin' Donuts has no power to change me. That was all up to me, right? That was up to me getting my act together, me trying, me getting a new routine down. And that's, I have no power. I have very minimal power. So all these stories that we're tempted to live by, there is no power in that message, in that reality. And so we are left to pour our lives into that story, trying to make it come alive, trying to make it do something. That's why we feel exhausted. That's why we feel drained. That's why we get frustrated so easily. Because we are pouring out our lives into empty, dead things, trying to make them come to life enough to give us life. Right? The gospel stands apart from every other message, every other religion, every other ideology or whatever, because it's not an idea. It's not an ideology. It's not an inspiration. It is a breakthrough message about a God who breaks into or breaks through our dark, dead places, our lives, a dark, dead world. Where does the power reside? You? Does Paul say... The gospel's powerful because you get inspired by it and you come to RUF every week and you read your Bible? No. He says the gospel is powerful because it's God's power. It is the power of God. It's an outside of you power that comes into you and changes everything. This is why you can feel very weak as a Christian and still be very powerful. This is why Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is why RUF focuses so much. This is why we sing some weird songs. Uh, by the way, if this is your first week, give it a month, it'll grow on you. I had, a first few, I had a first few weeks at RUF too where I was just like looking at the thing, like please no one look at me. Uh, but, but we sing these songs because they capture the fuller spectrum of what life's actually like. The Christian life's not about pounding your chest and always being at a mountaintop. It's ups and it's downs because the power isn't in you Per se, the power is God's power, which means he can give you his power even on your weak, bad, ugly days. And so that's how this gospel is different. It's also history. It's not something people made up to try to lift your spirits, help you get through life like a crutch. The gospel is history. It's breaking news on the ticker of your TV screen. If there had been TVs, it would be a ticker on the bottom of your TV screen. 
It's like 9-11. This news happens and it changes the whole world forever. Except that in a bad way, this changes everything in a good way forever. It's history. It's power. Anna gets crazy because I've told some of y'all this before, but I listen to Christmas music year-round. Half of my Pandora stations are Christmas stations. And um, my favorite Christmas song is Oh Holy Night. You know the words, right? You know who sings it best, don't you? Um, the second verse, long lay the world in sin and error, pining, longing, yearning, craving, reaching, until he appeared. And the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees and hear the angel voices. That is what Paul is trying to capture when he says, that the gospel is the story of the God who breaks into the weary world that has been pining and longing. What can break us through? What can carry us out of this stuckness, out of this regret, out of this shame, out of this feeling like God is always a million miles away, out of my connection to what I did this summer or last year, that guilt that will not leave you alone. That is what the, uh, the, the, the hymn writer of that song is trying to capture. And that's what Paul is saying. The gospel is the story of God appearing in the dark places of our lives on our behalf. And using all of his power and all of his resources to bring you to life. Paul didn't stop there. So keep trucking with me. Because Paul says uh, it's not just any power. It's not just any power. It's not some random like philosophical thing. What is power? Let's define it. He says it's resurrection power. And we'll come back to this in just a second, but he says it's resurrection power, a very specific kind of power. Hang with me here. Can y'all go deep with me for about 30 seconds? Take a big breath. We're like a whale. We're going to go to the bottom of the ocean real quick. Everybody ready? Look down at your paper at verses 2 through 4 around there. Track with me here. This is super awesome and important. Paul is saying here, he says, God set me apart to share this gospel of God, which, not new at all, right? He says the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied it all along. They said all along it was going to happen. He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Old Testament, not two stories, one story. Not a God of the Old Testament, a God of the New Testament. There's only been a plan A. There's only been a plan Jesus. There's never been a plan B. Say So one story prophesied of old by the Old Testament prophets about his son. Here's the important part. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. All right, come up for air. I'll tell you what he's saying there. Um, Thanks for going there with me. Here's what Paul is saying. I think it's actually the... Uh, one of the biggest points of what he's doing in this little passage here. 
What he's saying, when Paul uses the terms flesh and spirit, he's not talking about Jesus was fully man and fully God. He's not saying Jesus had a flesh and Jesus had a spirit. That's, he says that other places, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here, when Paul uses those two terms, he's talking about two ages, two realms, or two realities in a sense. He's saying you can divide human history from the very first people to the very last people. You can divide it with the age of the flesh and the age of the spirit. Okay? You're with me so far. Hang on. We're getting there. So the age of the flesh and the age of the spirit. What he is saying is that Jesus was born into, he's a descendant of David, he's born into the age of the flesh so that through his resurrection he might bring all who believe, he might bring all of his people into the age of the spirit. That's abstract. What does the age of the flesh, what is it? What does it feel like? The age of the flesh is why you cry. The age of the flesh is why we are all filled with insecurities. Why we are afraid of Welcome Week. Why we are afraid of coming tonight. That's the age of the flesh. The age of the flesh is why we feel shame and we hide and we lie. The flesh, the age of the flesh is why we're weak and powerless. The age of the flesh is why we fight and bicker. The age of the flesh is why we all have to deal with the fact that one day, unless Jesus says the end sooner than our lives, we all have to face death. The age of the flesh. The age of the flesh is why your parents got the news that they have cancer or your grandparents. The age of the flesh is why people die. The age of the flesh is why people get sick. The age of the flesh is why stuff in Ferguson, Missouri happens like it's been happening the past week with all these race riots. That's the age of the flesh. It is a broken, smoldering world. And it is not the way God intended it to be. So what does it mean that Jesus, as according to the flesh, was descended from David or a dis- born into that world? You heard about D-Day, of how the Allied forces crushed one of the most well-built defenses in wartime history. They had like concrete bunkers out in the entire French coast. Uh, the Nazi army did to keep the Americans and the Brits and everybody else out. What had to happen for the tide of the war to change is paratroopers had to parachute in in the dead of night behind enemy lines into Nazi-occupied territory. They had to parachute into the darkness, into the evil. And it was from within, inside of that place that they began to work freedom and liberty and victory. It wasn't something they could delegate from outside or something that you can sit in Washington, D.C., push a few buttons, and then it gets better. They parachuted into the evil and the darkness. And they repaired it. They redeemed it. They upended it from within inside of it. So what Paul is saying here uh, with this talk about the flesh and the spirit, he's saying Jesus parachuted into life as you know it. Let's be honest. Are you old enough to realize life hurts? We're not like emo here. We don't try to say, oh, life's always so hard. Life's great. I love this job. I love y'all. I love hanging out. But all of us had summers that didn't go the way we planned. All of us might have had days that didn't go the way we planned. We're not the people we want to be. We're not the people we should be. So what do we do uh, with all of this stuff? 
Uh, does it matter that that is the world, that those are the places of our lives that Jesus parachutes into? Why? That through his resurrection, he's called the first fruits of the resurrection, the first of many, the pioneer, the guy at the tip of the spear, that he might come into these places of death, that he might lead us out through his resurrection. Make sense? Into the age of the spirit. The age of the spirit is when all new possibilities come on, come on, come in play. New relational possibilities between you and God, new relational realities between you and God, a repositioning of your relationship with him. Where there's grace and peace, Paul says in this passage, flowing to you from God your Father. He's not a stranger anymore. God's not supposed to feel like a stranger. He's supposed to be intimate, face-to-face love with him. The fact that he feels like a stranger is a mark of the old age. He's passing away. But Jesus parachuted in to bring us out with him in his victory. First his resurrection and then ours. So I told you we'd come back to that resurrection power. Here's what Paul means. This is really quick. Resurrection power doesn't steamroll through people's lives in this sense. It's not like what the terrorists in Iraq are doing right now, where they're like leveling everything, destroying everything, burning everything, killing everything, so that they can build their state. That's not what resurrection power does. Resurrection power takes what it finds and redeems it and rewrites it, renews it, Uh, raises it up, renovates it. That's what resurrection power does, right? Uh, Lazarus dies. Jesus resurrects him. It's still Lazarus who comes back. So this power that Jesus has unleashed on the world, Paul says that's power for everybody who believes. This power, uh, it's like a catapulting power. And it brings us out uh, of those uh, fleshy, dark places And it doesn't steamroll your story. Here's the thing. I think a lot of us resist God and keep the gospel at bay, keep this message of this God who breaks in and makes everything new in Jesus. We we pay lip service. We come to church. We go to RUF. We have have Christian conversations. But we strong-arm God. We keep him far away. Here's the reason why I think it is. Because you think he's going to ruin your story. You think he's going to destroy your life. You think he's going to take life from you. You think he's going to bring boredom and blandness and lifelessness. And we imagine heaven like fat babies playing harps. And you're like, who wants that? We resist God. Even Christians, we resist God because you think he's going to ruin your life. And so we cling all the more tightly to the pieces of our lives can't have it. You can't touch it. It's mine. I don't want you to ruin it. Did you see the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Um, a lot of us watched it this summer and, and uh, had a little discussion afterwards and talked about it, but uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a true story. It's based on Walt Disney. I think it was in the 60s. It's based on Walt Disney trying to talk uh, is it M.L. Travers? That's her name? P.L. Travers. P.L. Travers is a was an author in England. She's the one who came up with the idea for Mary Poppins. That was her story. But did you know it was like a 20-year tug-of-war between Walt Disney and P.L. Travers? 
for her to release the rights for him to make it into the movie that most of y'all have seen, she wouldn't let go of the story. Because she was afraid that this little cartoony Walt Disney was going to destroy her story and destroy Mary Poppins and, and drain the life out of that story. And so for 20 years, she resisted as Walt Disney comes and says, I'll put Mary Poppins on every TV and every movie theater in America. And after 20 years, she is hard out for cash. She's low on money, and so her agent's basically like, look, you've got to take the deal. Uh, or you're going to, you know, you're pretty much not going to have any money to eat. And so she uh, begrudgingly says, I'll give you the rights to this, but I get final say in everything. And so she flies out to Hollywood, and, uh, and, and she comes into the studio, and she's meeting with writers who are trying to adapt her story to the, to the big screen. And uh, there, are very, there are real live audio recordings of these things, and they're kind of hilarious how sad they are. But she sits down and she says, before we start, you better know, I get final say on everything. And uh, you know in, in, um, on plays where they have something in brackets, it's like, camera raises up and the scene opens and it's a foggy New York night or whatever. She's taking issue with the punctuation in the brackets about the scene. She's like, I don't want it to be foggy. I want it to be this way. And they're like, uh, that's not part of the movie. Like, whatever. But she's nitpicking everything because she thinks they're going to destroy the story. And she makes life miserable for everybody in the studio. And you see how isolated and lonely and friendless and miserable she is. Until... Uh, she throws in the towel. She says, no, deals off. She goes back to England. Walt Disney flies over to London and meets with her, and he basically gets down on his hands and knees, and he says, <coughs> he says, Mrs. Travers. He says, you, he calls her Pam. He says, you have got to give me Mary Poppins. And he said, the last thing I would ever do, Mrs. Travers, the last thing I would ever do is tarnish a story that I cherish. He said, you have got to let go of her. You have got to give me Mary Poppins. And that was a breakthrough moment for Emil Travers. Because for the first time, she, she began to relinquish control of what she had strangled the life out of, trying to preserve its life. And, and, and this author, this, this unprecedented person like Walt Disney took the bland, lifeless, broken pieces of her story and in a sense, resurrection power began to animate those pieces and put color into them and life and music and singing, like let's go fly a kite, all those songs that get stuck in her head, that's what came out of it once Walt Disney got a hold of it. So was her story, Mary Poppins, better off when she was strangling the life out of it, protecting it so that he wouldn't ruin it? Or did her actually yielding to a better storyteller, yielding to a better author, handing the pieces of her story to a master storyteller who had the power and the know-how and the interest and the willingness to do something with it, did that actually make it better? The answer is obvious. So the question is, for us, how do we strangle the life out of our lives? trying to protect them from the God of life who says he brings resurrection life to add color and to reanimate and to make you alive again into the person 
the woman, the man you were intended to be, to be good again, to be rightly related to him, to be on good terms with God through Jesus, at peace with him, to be someone who's covered in grace. Why do, we, why, do we, why do we protect it? Why do we suspect him? And what would it look like, what would it look like to begin to let go? For P.L. Travers, she never let go of her story until she had been around Walt Disney enough to know maybe, just maybe, this guy can do what he says he's going to do. Only then did she start to let go of it. And it wasn't pretty, right? You've seen the movie. It, she was still like, Super nitpicky and annoying. But life was coming back into it. And you saw, in a sense, a story stuck in the age of the flesh is now a story that, to use this metaphor, it's kind of, it's now in the age of the spirit. It's a life-giving story. It is on every TV screen. It is in every kid's mind as he's humming the tunes to all these songs. Everybody knows about Mary Poppins. You're feeling really weird right now if you don't know about Mary Poppins. (laughs) But everybody knows about her. Because she finally trusted uh, that maybe Walt Disney can do something with this. And so we got to ask the question from this passage. Do we believe that this God actually is interested and cares to break into wherever you are? To bring you out. Breaking into those dark places. Into those powerless places. Into those guilty, shameful, full of regret places to bring you into the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit lives in you and you are alive forever with God again. And instead of becoming more and more dead throughout your life, you're becoming more and more alive. What would it look like to yield uh, to Him in our own lives and in our own stories as we're caught in the noise of all the other options, all the other stories? YOLO, eat, drink, and be merry. College is four best four years of your life. Take a break from God. Get serious later. What would it look like to have an ear for him in the midst of the noise of all the other stuff? We can end with this. Uh, two observations. One in the life of Paul. One in the life of RUF. How did it go for Paul? You know much about Paul? I said earlier, if you don't, that means you're kind of normal. Um, we'll, we'll get a better picture of who Paul is as the semester goes. But if you don't know much about Paul... Um, a couple of decades before he writes this letter, the last people on planet Earth Paul would ever want to long to be with, you know he says in here, I long to be with you so that we can mutually encourage each other. The last people on Earth he would ever want to be around were newly converted Christians and Greeks. Paul was racist. He hated Greeks. They were dirty. Uh, And Paul was... Paul was legalistic, and he hated these Christians. He killed them. That was his job. Extinguish them. And he, killed, he actually followed through with killing a lot of them. And so, uh, and you also know, Paul is kind of this life... He knows a lot about the Bible, but he's a lifeless man. He's a bitter man. He's an angry man. And then Jesus breaks into his life one day on the road to Damascus. And Paul's life was never the same. You know how many people on planet Earth's life have never been the same too because Paul broke into their life through this passage? You know anything about history. You know the entire course of the world was changed by what happened in the Reformation in Europe in the 1500s and 1600s. It comes from this. 
This is a God who breaks into so that he can bring people out. Did, it, did he do it for Paul? You tell me. Did resurrection life begin to flow out of Paul and come into Paul? Absolutely. Does he say it'll happen for everybody who believes, everybody who is connected to Jesus? You better bet your life on it. That's the first. The second and last is this. How does this show up in the life of RUF? And why do we call ourselves RUF? Well, sometimes maybe we could have chosen a better name. But it's been around a long time, so we've got to go with it. RUF is Reformed, and it says university, and it says fellowship. And the reason why is this. Reformed basically means we take the Bible really seriously, we take Jesus really seriously. We talk a lot about the Bible, we talk a lot about Jesus. Why? Did you hear what we said for the past 32 minutes? We have to. What other story would we talk about? Where else is there power to change you and me? How else are you going to ever get on good terms with God than Jesus and that story told through the Bible? And also the reform, which means we're always needing to be reformed, reshaped, rebuilt, re-renovated, renovated. We need all of this. We need reformation. That's why this is a safe place to come messy. You get to be in process here. You get to not have your act together. You get to have bad months or bad years where you're confused. And it's university. It means place matters. Remember when we said Rome was just like NMSU? Place matters. God puts a bullseye on these little college towns. Everybody says, I'm going there. My people are there. I'm going to break in. And I'm going to bring them out. And I'm going to make them alive again. So we love the campus. Because God loves the campus. And we love your friends at NMSU. I don't care what background they have. I don't care what religion they are. Bring them with you. You don't have to, like, fill out a survey before you come in. I'm this, I believe this, I believe that. Bring them. We'll love them, or we want to love them. So university and fellowship. Do you see the, the effects of resurrection life in Paul and the church? They start wanting to be around each other. Because Paul says, this is an impossible. Okay? He saw the resurrected Jesus with his eyes. He heard him. And Paul says, basically, I long to come to Tuesday night RUF because you could bless me. Because you would encourage my faith. What a thought. That the life of Jesus would be so much a part of you that it would actually flow out of you into even the chief of apostles. And so fellowship is something we take seriously too. Because it is a pipeline of how God's grace flows amongst each other. It's how we remind each other of the story. It's how we point each other back to Jesus. It's how we walk with each other when life's not going so well. Reformed, university, fellowship. That's what we're here to do. Well, let's pray that Jesus would help us do this. And that Jesus would open our eyes to the ways he's breaking in and pulling us out. Lord Jesus, we do... Thank you for who you are and for all that you've done. We thank you that you have been at work tirelessly since the beginning of time to break into a dark world um, and to, uh, to redeem what you have found. Not to wipe it all off the map and start from scratch, but to recreate. To make new all that is old and passing away. To bring life where death had dug in its heels. And we pray for all my friends here tonight. This would make sense. And if it doesn't, would you continue to pursue us? 
uh, until it does. We ask all of this in your name and for your sake. Amen.